Welcome to the DGR Podcast. I'm your host, David Gray. Hello guys, David here. Welcome back to the DGR Podcast. I don't know whether to call it DGR or David Gray Rehab Podcast. For Google SEO, it's probably better to say David Gray Rehab Podcast, but DGR, you can say it a little bit easier, I think. So uh, today I have a great guest. I have Dr. Peter Maliaris. Pete is based in Melbourne, Australia. He's a physiotherapist and researcher specializing in tendinopathies. So a topic close to my heart as an athlete that ended up with a lot of tendinopathies over the years. He's completed his PhD in tendinopathy in 2007 and has since undertaken postdoctoral research in the UK and Australia. He's co-authored over 130 peer-reviewed publications. So that is 130 more than I have. And um, he is, uh, is, I suppose, one of the world respected authorities on tendinopathy so it was great to talk to him today we talked a little bit just tendons in general and especially achilles tendon we i I kind of dived into that a lot with him and uh or he dived into that a lot with me we just we spoke about just commonalities in achilles and then we kind of got into some cool stuff with regards to mid portion versus insertional achilles issues and um especially like rehab for that exercise what you might want to avoid what you might want to do and then we talked about as well some of his ideas around increasing the load and speed of movement and plyometrics and his hopping progressions and, and what he's looking for there foot contact ground contact and progressing from like around concentric eccentric all that stuff so um so really nice hopping progression in there as well and it's actually come at a really good time because for our members matt mckinnis watson from plus plyos so matt did an episode on plyometrics i don't have what episode number in front of me but he actually just emailed me with a presentation he's done for our member site and it's all around plyometrics he's done like a 30 minute presentation on just how he reintroduces plyometrics to someone kind of in the rehab process or someone who hasn't done much before and he's geared it a little bit towards achilles for us so he's given us like a rough outline of a 10-week progression of some of the exercises that he might use some of the landing uh, how many landings you might be looking for in week one versus week two versus week three and kind of some of the cues he'd look he'd look for and things like that so be honest if you sign up for dgr interactive that presentation alone is worth the yearly fee easily and then that's not to mention all the other videos there so we have a great podcast on achilles with pete and then we have a great presentation there for our members as well so um so yeah here's the episode i hope you really enjoy it make sure and give us a shout out if you do and obviously give pete a follow and all that stuff there all all the links are in the show notes and yeah here's the episode and i'll see you on the other side Hello, Peter. Thank you very much for joining me. How are you? Very good, David. Thank you very much for having me on. How's all in Melbourne? Yeah, look, it's all good. It's uh, getting better, getting more close to normality now, which is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. Um, I wanted to chat about kind of all things tendons, if we can, obviously, but a little bit more Achilles. But would, do you want to give us a bit of a kind of an uh, elevator pitch as to who you are and what you're doing at the moment? Yeah, no worries. So I am an associate professor at Monash University in Melbourne, and I am mainly doing research into Achilles and rotator cuff tendinopathy at the moment. So I'm leading two trials, one on Achilles and one on the shoulder. And then I'm also doing lab studies that are looking at generally looking at impairments for tendinopathy and how to improve them. So they're the sort of main areas and trying to develop new treatments and new ways 
of uh, rehabilitating uh, tendinopathy. So that's basically what I do, but I also work in clinic one day a week as well. Okay. Have you pushed more away from the clinic recently or is that, is, is that, is that something going forward, more clinic, less clinic, or what's the plan there? Or do you know? Yeah, I have slowly, slowly as the years gone on, reduced the clinic work. So I did my PhD 15 years ago now, I completed that, and um, I was working a mix of clinical and, uh, and also research ever since. But uh, more recently, I have been more, more research than clinical, mm-hmm. with only one day a week in the last probably three, four years in the clinic. Is there a certain type of population you're working with, or is it a little bit of everyone? Yeah, so it's, in the clinic, it is a mix of all tendinopathies. I see mainly Achilles. I'd say 50% is Achilles, but then the rest is made up of uh, patella, foot and ankle tendons, gluteal, hamstring, lateral elbow, shoulder. So it's quite varied. Like some days I'll go to work and it's just a full day of Achilles, like 10 Achilles one after the other. Other days I'll go to work and it's a mix of things. So it's quite interesting. I'm getting a lot of Achilles at the moment because you can tell me if this is right or wrong now, but in Ireland, uh, we're coming into summer. So the ground is getting harder and every Gaelic footballer and hurler comes in and they say, my Achilles, it was grand. It was grand in the kind of preseason and off season. And uh, now the ground is getting harder and my Achilles has come at me again. Is that, uh, yeah. is, is that a fair thing to say, for them to say? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, any, any sort of change in, in loading, um, you know, be it shoes or be it ground or be it, you know, the actual external loads that you're doing could potentially be causing some problems for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there any way for us to mitigate against that in terms of obviously just slow, maybe slowly introducing it, slowly introducing that, that load or doing that slower? But then I suppose even if they're training in softer ground and maybe plyometrics on hard ground or so, some dosage of that will be, will be beneficial. Yeah, I guess the um, the main things are just coming going back to the basics. So ensuring the person has the right, I guess, uh, capacity, and that would probably go down to strength and power. So there, you know, you could monitor that and make sure that that's being addressed if that's a problem. But also then, as you say, trying to introduce different loads and different environments very gradually, mm-hmm. so they're not suddenly going, say, to putting on spikes, or they're not suddenly going to um, you know, starting to train on different surfaces. That's, they're, they're the sort of two key, key things, but they're easier said than done, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, very, very tricky, especially for me, mm-hmm. like, when the ground is, when the ground is a bit softer, at least our back training in Ireland, at least like three or four days a week, maybe, maybe a, bit, a little bit more. And then you're going to try and, like, I think plyometric work is very important, especially if an athlete finishes their season and then they're not, they're not doing any kind of much running for three or four months and then they're going back into it, but the ground is soft. I think that's, mm. I think that plyometric work is important just in general for performance and maybe, maybe tendon health, um, just to keep some of that sprinkled in, but it's very hard when they're training hard at the same time as well. You know, they're already fatigued and it's hard to keep that, um, sprinkled in, but that's a, that's a constant battle. Yeah, oh, no, I, I, I agree. I agree. So I'm, I'm particularly interested with Achilles at the moment. I, as an athlete, I had a lot of Achilles issues, a lot of patellar tendon issues. And then when I went doing a bit more kind of gymnastic strength training, a lot of elbow issues. Is there anything that's predisposing someone like me to maybe tendon issues rather than muscle injuries? Or is it just kind of, I'm not very smart with my training? 
Um, there could be a there could be many many factors that uh, predispose to injury. So to I guess you could say to pain rather than injury mm-hmm. to a, a tendon condition, and uh, they could be factors like the amount of training you're doing, the type of training, and how the training is progressed. But then also possibly would be other factors like um, the general health of that individual. So how, you know, they might be overweight, have a high BMI, they might have, you know, metabolic issues. If they're a bit older, that's more likely. There might also be genetic underlying predispositions and, you know, you know tendinopathy issues do tend to run in families and much like ACLs, there could be genetic reasons that explain that. There might be also uh, hormonal drivers or particularly I think this is, this is something that we look for in females. So it could be females that are very active and have hormonal issues like irregular menstrual cycles or older, uh, I guess, perimenopausal females where the hormones are changing rapidly. So things like that could, be, could affect the homeostasis of the tendon, so metabolic and uh, hormonal issues. It could also be biomechanical issues and tissue-related things like previous injuries. So you might have had some previous injuries growing up. You know, so for example, I saw someone in a clinic on Wednesday that has got a teletinopathy at the inferior pole, but when he was growing up, he's always been very active playing football and cricket. He had very severe Oshkod Slatter's disease and he's got still got ossicles, um, bony ossicles in the um, distal insertion to the tibia and uh, he's got a very thickened tendon there. And I wonder whether that thickened tendon is now dysfunctional and is getting overload in the proximal tendon. So things like that, you know, prior injury could be a, a risk factor or other injuries at other sites as well. So that and, and weakness and dysfunction and fear and apprehension that come with previous injury and weakness and things mm-hmm. that people get. So all those things. So, you know, looking at it from a biopsychosocial point of view, I think there are there are risk factors for pain all across those biopsychosocial factors for development of pain, but also the development of chronic persistent pain mm-hmm. uh, throughout those factors. And that's the same for tendinopathy. I think we're just starting to recognise more the psychological and lifestyle factors a bit more in tendinopathy, but that's sort of emerging stuff rather than well-embedded stuff. But, yeah, look, any of those, any of the above, basically, for you? Probably all of the above for me. <laughs> everything. Everything's a mess. I think for me, like, just anecdotally, again, that's obviously my experience with it, but I got pretty nasty patellar tendinopathy when I was playing Gaelic football at a pretty decent level and then kept training through it. Didn't really have a good rehab plan at that time. This is 10 years ago now. Didn't really have... Yeah, there wasn't, there was a little bit of like eccentric quad loading, but I didn't necessarily understand just how important, just pure, just, just strengthening the whole area and getting very, very strong and managing the load. Well, naturally I understood managing load because if I did three days a week, I was kind of okay. If I did four days a week on the pitch, I was very bad. And if I did five days a week, I couldn't walk anymore. So when that happened, like I, I definitely changed how I ran as a result of the patellar tendinopathy and how I jumped and how I decelerated. And I feel like that definitely contributed to my Achilles issues then after that. So I, I started to develop Achilles issues on the same side and then Achilles issue on, on both sides. And that got really, really nasty. 
so basically what I'm trying to say is patellar tendinopathy, not, not necessarily previous injury, but that pain and that fear avoidance of that, like for me, I feel like caused, mm. caused that. Is, is that something that, that mm. you would tend to see is that, and would you, would you classify that as like a, a biomechanical factor then for, for the Achilles mm. and, mm. or is that more of a, maybe you can't, maybe you just can't separate between the two. Can you, between like fear avoidance and low tolerance yeah. and biomechanical? Well, I guess the way to think about it from a more you know, simplistic point of view is uh, that if you have an injury, but you don't often fully recover, you, you might have impairments that remain. Mm-hmm. So those imp- often pain does improve. That's one, that's one characteristic of a condition, pain, and that's often the most important one because that's the one that people present with. That's the one that people want us to treat often. And to get better, but it's not as simple as just improving pain. And when you have a condition, often you have impairments that remain. And those impairments could be, as you say, things like strength, power, it could be fear, it could be apprehension, it could be, you know, reduced self-efficacy and all these things that remain. And then they could the the I guess the ongoing thought and proposition from there is that if these things are remaining and not always resolving or we're not always good at resolving these, then maybe they can lead to other injuries or recurrence of the same injury. So, so that's if you then start to be active again and your body will then start to compensate. Or So I think, I think it's quite plausible that those things do happen and I'm convinced they do happen for some people, but maybe they're not important for other people, these ongoing impairments, because certainly you don't see them with every single Achilles patient or tendon patient that you see. I've got a position at the moment, Joel Martin, who's looking at um, exactly that question of sort of impairments that, I guess not impairments remaining, because he's not looking at it from that point of view, but he's looking at all these impairments that you can measure and how do they impact on how someone maybe uh, loads their tendon, but also how do they improve if you do exercise for the tendon, you do rehabilitation? Do they improve and what sort of rehabilitation improves them specifically? So we're still learning a lot, I think. And there's other people around the world. There's actually Colin Griffin, who's in based at um, Dublin. Yeah, he's doing a really nice trial. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. doing a really nice trial on similar things, looking at some of these biometric properties and if they improve. Uh, we haven't done enough of that in the tendinopathy literature. People like Karen Silbernagel in at Delaware University is also very interested in these impairments and, and, and whether they recover. So, yeah, I think I think all these things will help our understanding once we we do get a fuller understanding. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, then, it, is it so? Even how the how the tendinopathy may be developed in the first place, we're we're always unsure. Obviously, you can't pinpoint anything, but most people seem to respond well enough to good smart loading strategies regardless of how it came about in the first place yeah that's true uh that's true and that's also an interesting point because it seems almost a bit too simplistic and a bit too convenient that if you you know because literature pretty much suggests that regardless of the type of loading you do in trials people just tend to improve so some of that is probably natural history as well Mm -hmm. some of that is just fluctuations in pain with intermittent 
episodic conditions like musculoskeletal conditions. So it's, it's, it's really, yeah, we don't understand really the mechanisms of exercise yet or how exercise improves people. It is definitely an intervention that's worth trying with these people and worth doing and implementing well. I think it does definitely have a good effect if people implement it, but there are problems with how it's implemented. So often, often the intentions are good and people prescribe the exercise, but they don't actually do it and that limits the effect. But a lot of times people still seem to get better. So it's just understanding, I think, the, the key questions are we need to know the mechanisms. What are the mechanisms by which exercise works? And is it the case that um, we can then improve the efficacy of exercise interventions by targeting mechanisms more? And it might be that the mechanisms are psychological. So it might be that we're just providing a supportive environment for people to be more confident to load, for people to have less pain-related fear, for people to be having more self-efficacy to progress their loading in daily life. And that then leads to benefits in pain. And I think that's a key mechanism that we need to explore. And I don't, I don't think the simplistic mechanism of loading just to get people stronger is, is an important one. However, I think in getting people stronger that have strength issues or impairments uh, that are physical, that is also important because there's a physical component to it, there's a disability component to it, and there's a pain component to it, which may or may not be related. So, so I, think, I think it's important to look at all the impairments and try and improve the main ones for people. But the key questions for me for exercise are, can we understand the mechanisms better? Can we then make the exercise better for people? And does that explain some of the variability? And then can we also get people to adhere to the exercise more? But at the same time, we also need to be conscious that maybe exercise is not the approach that everyone needs. And maybe there are other, uh, there are people that might uh, respond more to other, you know, and then again, going back to the biopsychosocial model where you might have impairments that are driven by fear, but uh, where maybe movements or exercise is not the best avenue for addressing fear in some people. It's other interventions, maybe education or something else. So I think, I think we need to keep an open mind at this very early stage in tendinopathy research to understand that we, we, we don't have a lot of answers and exercise is good, but it, uh, it needs to be further developed to be a very, an intervention that we understand um, its limitations and how to use it. I think for the people kind of outside the research world, the best physios and coaches are, are probably ticking some of those, some or all of those boxes along the way anyway, where they're giving exercise and kind of giving a little pep talk along the way and trying to tell people, you know, just about their, their own daily life and the fear, the fear education and, and stuff like that. But you obviously can't measure then one versus the other. But I think the best physios are probably doing a little bit of all of that stuff along the way and just mixing it all in and for giving, just reading the person in front of them, giving one person a little bit more of one versus another person a little bit more of the other. But I know yeah, exactly. you, can't, you can't measure that. Um, no, so that, no, it's, it's, it's hard to measure that. It's hard to study that. Yeah. It's, um, it's a challenging 
it's a challenging sort of yeah clinical reasoning sort of conundrum but it's um, understanding some of the key elements I guess for people if we can in a research setting will probably help us in clinical practice but clinical practice is always going to be much more complex and much more driven by the individual I think. And some of the differences between maybe like insertional and then mid-portion clinically if you are treating that with with exercise what will come to mind there? Yeah so insertional ones they they tend to be more related to so that I think compression is is a a factor and uh, we do need to be conscious of loading them into extreme levels of dorsiflexion because it can be painful and provocative for the ones that go in, uh, that have an insertional problem. Often, and, and one of the key signs for me with insertional tenopathies when you look at them, if you assess an insertional tenopathy and you get them to hop, often their hop is not that painful, but when you get them to a calf raise over a step into dorsiflexion, it's, it's more painful. So that, that's a sign that they're driven more, more so by compression of the tendon. So that, that sort of differentiates your treatment to a certain extent because you have to try and load them out, out of that compressive position. It could be isometric. is quite good for these people to start with, but then calf raise on flat ground and then calf raises into some dorsiflexion, but not much dorsiflexion. So I usually use a just custom bits of board that we have from a hardware shop that is probably 15 mil, 20 mil, 25 mil, maximum 30 mil, get them to drop off that into heel dorsiflexion. And that progressively gives them some dorsiflexion without going into full dorsiflexion. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing you've got to be conscious of is the stretch shortened cycle requirements of the Achilles tendon. So when you've got when you've got a mid-portion, we know that the key role of the mid portion of the Achilles is to really absorb energy and absorb load. So you have to be thinking about progressions into some hopping and jumping. Now, it's not to say you won't do it for the insertionals, but it's probably more important to get to recover some of that confidence and that function in being able to do plyometric elastic Achilles tendon type activities with a mid portion one of the observations I've had over the years is that a lot of the insertionals, they, they do tend to have protective patterns. So whether it's what people say to them, because they often come in saying, oh, I shouldn't be doing any dorsiflexion. And that can, I think that can be nocebic. And uh, it basically then sets them up for, I think, some avoidance of dorsiflexion. And you often see that manifesting in hopping because they hop high up on their toes and they don't want to go into dorsiflexion. It's really interesting. And that's something that is a motor um, sort of, you know, manifestation of probably apprehension, fear, and their beliefs. So untangling some of that for the insertional people, you can go into dorsiflexion. It's not going to be a problem if you do that in a controlled manner, avoiding full range of dorsiflexion just like we do with every other tendon. So, for example, if you're doing a hamstring origin, proximal hamstring tendon, you'll, you'll go into hip flexion, but you're, just, you're going to avoid the extremes of hip flexion, especially with heavy load. Mm-hmm. So it's the same mentality as the insertional. So I think there's a lot of education around dorsiflexion for the insertionals. That also is important 
I think heel wedges can be used for both of them. Yep. So we, um, yeah, I, I generally would 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 not. Uh, I, I think if you think about it from a conceptual point of view, heel wedges probably are really good for insertional because you're going to take them out of dorsiflexion and compression, but they also tend to work really well for for the mid portion Achilles. Uh, so I don't think there's a difference there. But going back to rehab, yeah, I guess the key differences are how you would then go about the dorsiflexion loading. Whereas for your mid portion, it's probably a good thing to be loading into dorsiflexion as quickly as possible. Now, the reason for that is that we know that peak loads in the Achilles tendon occur in dorsiflexion. So if, you, if you're loading up into calf raises and you're avoiding dorsiflexion, you're pretty much avoiding the part of the calf raise that's going to give you the biggest loading of the Achilles. So it's difficult. And I think for that reason, it's harder to get them better because they're not getting the same stimulus potentially uh, when they do their calf raises. And that could be something that um, you know, causes them to you know, go on for a little bit longer. They, they probably are a bit harder to treat, I think, some of them. Um, yeah, look, although yeah. having said that, a lot of the mid-portion people are very hard to treat as well. <laughs> I, think it, I think it depends on a lot of factors, not just the cytopathology. Yeah. You do get difficult ones with both. You know, you're, you're kind of creeping towards a little bit more dorsiflexion with the, with the insertion. You might be a little bit more careful with that. Would you keep creeping towards loading full dorsiflexion? Uh, or would you kind of be happy? Would you get greedy with it and like say, okay, another little bit, another little bit over time, obviously? Or would you uh, just maybe pull it at once at some stage? Mm. Uh, look, I try not to get too greedy with it. Um, I think you've got to be conscious that if you do go a bit too far, you're possibly going to provoke them. So I, I, I don't often go into full dorsiflexion. Having said that, I do on a double leg. So on, on single leg, I wouldn't go into, dorsif- into full dorsiflexion, but on double leg, I'm quite happy to give them double leg calf raise over a step into full dorsiflexion. And that often is uh, a really good thing to do because the problem that you get with, with some of the people who have got an insertional Achilles, if they have avoided dorsiflexion for a long time, they might get quite tight in their calf muscle. In, in the, so the calf, calf muscles type, or they might have been tight in their calf muscle anyway. And that's possibly one of the factors that has contributed to their condition. So you might want to address the flexibility, but it's hard to address it because you can't, you can't really prescribe, you don't want to prescribe stretching into dorsiflexion. So a compromise that I often go for is double leg calf raise over step. Yeah, okay, I like it. Um, kind of greedy. <laughs> what, uh, and then when, you, when you're thinking about going into a hop maybe one versus the other or just or just you can just group them together would you think about a different type of hop for for one versus the other not really maybe it's just I, a different cue then for the insertional where it's getting onto that midfoot a little bit more maybe yeah look i i, I would do my hopping pro- protocol for the achilles is um not is does depend a bit it's quite sort of i've got sort of specific i guess i, I guess you can call them modules 
So the first module that I'd go to is trying to develop landing, proficiency and confidence. And that I think is really, really important because you can't really hop unless you can land. And what I mean by landing is being able to absorb load into dorsiflexion as you land from a hop. Because uh, if a lot of people, as we've talked about already, can be quite stiff and as they're landing. So, you know, if you get them to do hopping interventions, even if the pain is not too bad, they might have a one or two out of 10 pain. You get them to do some hopping and you, you're pretty much fine. They don't progress very well because they're, they're not landing. So the first module is landing. That could be things like just over the edge of a step, progressively trying to get them to land and take load into dorsiflexion. Double leg, single leg, progress the height of the step. My second module would then be, sub, uh, would then be jumping. So concentric power, jumping up onto things. The third module. But that's it. Are you yeah. doing a full landing from there? So you're jumping up onto a box rather than jumping and landing back on the floor. So it's much more. Yeah, just onto a box. Just yeah, onto yeah. a box. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so jumping onto a box. And then um, after that, starting some plyometrics. So the plyometrics could be submaximal to start with, and then going to maximal or pogo plyometrics. So there's a progression that I use for the Achilles, which is quite good. And it, it really sort of helps to get some confidence in, in the hopping and also address some of those stiffness issues. And it doesn't really matter what their underlying sort of insertion versus mid-portion is. You'd still do the same stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Can you give us a little bit of an insight into that progression then as you, as you kind of gone from the, the landing into the concentric? What does that look like after that then? Yeah, so the concentric, I would... I would do jumping onto a box and it could be starting with double leg, going to single leg, jumping onto a box and then going to higher boxes. Mm-hmm. So really trying to develop power so into a counter movement and then jumping up onto a box. And then finally I'd go to submaximal plyometrics where they do hopping on the spot, hopping forwards, backwards, sideways, hopping up onto boxes and down again. That's like a rebound hop. They do things like um, that hop just in different directions, zigzag hopping, just variability of hopping on one leg, but all submaximal. So you're basically trying to recover confidence and variability of movement, trying to get them to explore different types of movements on single leg, submaximal hop. Once, they, once they've got proficiency with that, then I'd go to maximal hopping. So the maximal hopping generally is just pogo hops for the Achilles. You don't need to necessarily bring the kinetic chain in and do jumps, but you can if you want, if it's relevant for their function and sport. But generally for the Achilles, the best way to do maximal hopping for the Achilles is just get them to keep the knee straight and hop as high as they can, as in the pogo hop. And uh, that really loads the Achilles a lot. So I do that double leg, single leg, single leg uh, going forwards. Um, so variations of pogo as well. Yeah. Continuous. So you're just. So just going for 10 hops in a row on the spot yep. type of thing. Yeah, exactly. And so they uh, might do six, six pogo hops as high as they can, have a rest, uh, do it again, yep. that, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, I might be getting finicky now, but I, I'm getting greedy now. Do you, um, two, two questions. Do you look at uh, ground contact time and do you look at the actual landing themselves or in terms of how, how much on the toes they are, would you cue them? Or, or, or like if they're too if they're too much on the heel or anything like that, are you are you cueing anything there with their landings? 
I would cue them, but I would probably, and that's the, I think that's the important part of the progression. If you go through the landing progression first and then you go from the landing progression to the concentric power progression, it sort of gives them that ability to have the strength and they've got the adequate strength, then that allows them to hop better and it pretty much just is something they can then go on to gradually. And it might be that they've, you know, got some issues with just the confidence of hopping initially, but that sort of sorts itself out pretty quickly. So I, I find that that progression is useful and I'm probably queuing more in those initial two stages when I'm wanting them to get full power out of their ankle and also land with good dorsiflexion. So then in terms of contact time, that was your second question. I do, but only from a research point of view. So I don't use it in the clinic. We've got force plates that we, I've got, so for example, currently I've got an honor student who is um, a, a physiology honor student at Monash University and he takes the Achilles patients and he measures things like contact time in a pogo hop, for example, and reactive strength and things like vertical stiffness. So those things are really, really good to measure, but they can take a lot of time as well. So we, we, I mainly do it not so much to publish it, but more at the moment getting an understanding of which measures might be important. And there's a couple of PSC students who are interested in developing that area and uh, looking at developing some measures that we possibly can use in the clinic, like contact time or other things that we can uh, be a little bit more objective with the hopping. But at the moment, it's probably just more clinical application and just clinically subjectively looking at how good they are going through those progressions. Okay, that's really helpful. Thank you very much for that. What do you think, or can you explain, not what you think necessarily, but people who are quite strong in the gym maybe, and that, and that, firstly, do you find it troublesome for them to get back into some plyometric type of work? And secondly, can you explain maybe, well, firstly, maybe explain what is actually changing at the tendon from a calf raise to a plyometric hop? What the Achilles is actually doing and what its function is, like how, it, how the function is changing and then why that can be problematic for some people. So do you mean that how the function is changing when they've got pain and pathology, how their hopping changes, or do you mean how it changes with the rehab? No, how it changes just in, in, in how the tendon is actually functioning, a healthy or unhealthy tendon is actually functioning in, let's yep. say, a calf raise, a, a slower load like that versus yeah. then mm-hmm. when we move into plyometric load and, and yeah, just what, what the Achilles is actually, is actually doing. Fantastic. That's one of my favorite questions. Okay. Um, so, so basically, uh, when you're doing slow loading, you've got very much a muscle focus. And you, you think about it as two springs in series. So that you've got two, the muscle tendon unit is two springs in series. You've got the tendon spring and you've got the muscle spring. And the muscle spring is basically much more compliant. So when you're doing things like calf raises, because the muscle forces are lower, then the tendon spring is still not absorbing much energy. But the muscle spring in the eccentric phase is the thing that really does absorb the energy. It's the muscle force is not, not high enough for the tendon spring to start to strain. But then when you start doing things like hopping and jumping and running, you start to then produce much higher forces in, in the muscle spring 
So because the muscle spring is much more active, that means that the tendon spring is forced to then strain and it strains and it basically acts like a spring where it, it, it absorbs energy, strains, it absorbs energy, and that energy is, is passively stored in the tendon. And if you do it fast enough, it's also returned. So some of that energy will be lost as heat within the tendon, and we call that hysteresis. But then some of the, a lot of the energy, probably, well, I'm just thinking hysteresis, probably more than 70% of the stored energy is returned. And that drives locomotion. So if you think about activities like doing a hop, it could be that 30% of the energy requirements of the hop are passive and they come from that stored energy, okay? So that, that, that's the advantage of it. So the advantage of that ability of the Achilles and the calf muscle tendon unit to store energy in the tendon is that you are much more efficient because you've got the muscle fascicles that are operating in an optimal range and you've got the tendon passively driving a lot of that energy requirements for, for, that, for that function. So, um, so that's, the, that's the difference. Now, as you get older, now the, the, the reason the tendon, going down to more of a microstructural level, the reason the tendon can do that, and this is only for energy storage tendons, is that they have this thing called an interfascicular matrix. So the interfascicular matrix, well, all tendons have them, but the energy storage tendons have specialised ones where in between the fascicles, so the interfascicular region, you get lots of sliding. And the sliding occurs between fascicles and there's lots of ground substance in there. And the ground substance probably takes some of the sort of stretch or takes some of that energy up. The ground substance is just proteins that bind water and they basically absorb some of that lengthening. So you have this very specialised interfascicular matrix that allows that sliding in energy storage. As you get older, that sliding gets less and less and changes to the interfascicular matrix occur. So that probably then is the starting point for pathology, which you go down the cycle of, you know, for some reason, more, more proteoglycans and more ground substance is produced and you get swelling in the tendon. But that leads to dysfunction in this sliding mechanism. And then you start getting changes in the matrix and the collagen and everything else starts to then change in the tendon. So it's interesting how those tendons are very, very much, you know, that is the strength of the tendon, of the energy storage tendon, the ability to store energy, but it also then can become an area that leads to, you know, uh, pathology over time in that tendon. Very straightforward then. <laughs> one, one, one kind of last question for you, Peter, I suppose. With, with, let's, let's take a, a good athlete, a professional athlete who's a footballer or something like that, or AFL rugby player, it doesn't really matter. They're, they've done a lot of, and maybe they come from their club to someone like you, and they've done a lot of strength work. They've done a lot of calf raises, and they're, they're still playing. They're able to play, but they just don't, they're just kind of, inhibited let's say or just not not the pain is getting in the way is there any commonalities there that you see with 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 athletes like that where they're actually maybe they're doing their loading not as well as they could or exercise selection or sets and reps or load or anything there that you could you could pass on some knowledge on so someone who's basically doing all the right things but not improving or 
maybe doing the right things yeah or they think they're doing like they're they, they have been strengthening they have been trying to load mm. they have been doing their mm. calf raises they have been still trying to play yeah yeah that, that seems to be a common one yeah look i i, I honestly think uh time uh i think time and i think i've learned this in the clinic because i don't have the pressures of elite sport i do see elite sports people but extremely less so than some of the just day-to-day people that I see here in the clinic. Mm-hmm. And if someone is really struggling with pain, time is the best thing. So just unwinding the system, trying to bring about some reduction in their symptoms rather than pushing through it. And, yeah, it, 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 it often does work, and it could be months sometimes. So I've just had an Achilles patient who I've been treating for a while and wasn't not no the exercise was breaking through for him so we just did a period of um six weeks of not running and he did some exercise in that time and i saw him again um, recently and his pain is much better and now we're building him up and not only his pain better but the way he's hopping is better so his movement patterns have improved and he's um he's now ready to engage in a loading process again a much more sort of, you know, stretch, shorten, cycle, loading process because you're just banging your head against the wall if you can't reduce the symptoms. Uh, and that I don't think that luxury is afforded to anyone in elite sport where they have six weeks to just do nothing. Yeah, it's very tricky. That's, that's why tendon issues are so tricky for myself, for so, so many other people that, like, if you, if you tore your hamstring, if you broke a bone, if you, something like that, you would get your six weeks off maybe. And here's your chance to rehab this all the way back up with a tendon. It's kind of, yeah, I can kind of still play and you never really get that. You're all, you're, you're banging your head against the wall. You never really get that period of, especially with sports in Australia and Ireland as well, where they get a very short off season as well. It's very, Mm. it's very, very tricky to get a good sustained period of rehab where we do our, we do our strength work. We move on to our plyometrics and we have a good rest in between. It's very, very hard. Mm. That's my, that's my biggest biggest problem with people at the moment yeah yeah no i think i think um i think i would i would agree with that i would agree with that it is it is it is difficult we need and we need better strategies for for elite sport the problem is it's so uncertain how to treat them that people tend to gravitate towards in injections and interventions and surgery because they, they perceive that may be something that's going to be more likely to get people better or at least doing as much perceived to be as doing as much as, as as possible for that person when really the simple things we know work but we don't have the time to do them as we probably should. I wonder are some of those interventions just actually if they do work, let's say they're just actually giving them a, a line in the sand. Now you have a now you have an intervention, now you have a period of rest and, and then a period of rehab maybe after it. And I think mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's yeah. that's probably in my view. I don't know. I don't know how much how hard you can be saying that, but I, I that in my view anyway, that's um, that's definitely what I think with them a lot, a lot of the time. Final question: If Elon Musk gave you a budget for to do any research you could do, money was not a was not an issue. What would you What would you love to study? What would you love to see? Okay, there is lots of things that are just one study. Well, you can, you can, Elon, you can, you can take a couple of them. Okay. So basically the first thing would be, I think we need to have bigger, much bigger, bigger studies that 
uh, able that enable us to understand how um, covariates like uh, metabolic factors, like different populations, like different levels of uh, different sort of beliefs and psychological factors and other things influence outcome. And that could be in a very large cohort studies or looking at trying to understand these groups that probably influence outcome a lot more. That would be a, that would be something that just hasn't been done where we just haven't got the resources to incentivize people enough to do these studies, and that's incentivize the patients or incentivize the physios who could actually be part of that. Um, so something like that, a big effort in, in, in trying to understand how people respond and how people and what are the factors that influence that. That would be one thing. The other thing would be, as we've touched on already, just understanding exercise more. We, we, we're, we're so invested in exercise, but we don't know anything about the mechanisms virtually. So understanding those mechanisms would be really another thing that I'd be very, very interested in, in, in uh, trying to understand. Awesome. Okay. I'll send in Elon an, an email later on today. What, uh, thank you very much for coming on. Where, where would you like people to go if you would like people to go anywhere? So websites or social media or anything like that? Probably the website, which is tendinopathyrehab.com. And if you go on there, there's blogs, there's, um, there's courses, there's other things that might be of interest. The other one is obviously um, just Twitter. And I think my handle is Dr. Pete Maliaris on Twitter. That's, a, that's the other one. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Peter. Really appreciate it. No worries, David. Thank you for having me on.